Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, December 13th, 2022, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Four people are charged in a European Union Parliament corruption investigation. Previous Twitter management is accused of tweaking the rules to permanently ban Trump. Peru's president seeks early elections as protests rock the country. Biden and the G7 pledge more military assistance to Ukraine. The UN says over 11,000 children have been killed or maimed in Yemen's civil war. A Libyan man suspected in the 1988 Lockerbie bombing arrives in U.S. custody. The second Oath Keepers January 6th sedition trial begins. Twitter's paid blue tick is relaunched. China deactivates its national COVID tracking app. A girl is cleared of incurable cancer with a new base editing therapy. And the U.S. is set to announce a breakthrough in fusion energy. Our top story, four are charged in an EU parliament corruption investigation. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, BBC News, Al Jazeera, Reuters, and New York Times. Belgian authorities on Sunday announced they had charged four people with corruption, money laundering, and participation in a criminal organization as part of a major investigation into alleged bribes from, quote, a Gulf state to current and former members of the European Parliament. Prosecutors searched 16 houses and confiscated 600,000 euros, that's about 632,000 American dollars, in Brussels on Friday, with six people being initially detained and two released without charges. A source close to the case alleged that the Gulf state trying to meddle in EU decisions is Qatar. Though the names of those indicted haven't been released, the European Parliament has suspended the powers and duties of Greek official Ava Kaili, one of its vice presidents. Her socialist PASOK party has also stated that it's expelling Kaili from its ranks. As investigators allege that the Gulf state has been influencing economic and political decisions for months, namely by targeting AIDS, the Qatari government has denied all accusations. Kylie's duties as vice president included a portfolio for the Middle East, in which she recently praised Qatar's labor rights record. Those initially detained in question also include Kylie's father, Alexandros, Kylie's life partner and aide, Francesco Giorgi, newly elected chief of the International Trade Union Confederation, Luca Vincentini, and former MEP, Pier Antonio Penzeri. The identity of the sixth person remains unknown. This comes as the parliament was due to vote this week on extending visa-free travel to the EU from Kuwait, Qatar, Oman, and Ecuador. Some suggested the vote should be postponed, and others have suggested conducting a debate on the corruption raids. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. During this podcast, we extract the spins from the facts. And our first one for this story is an establishment-critical narrative coming from Today UK News. While this may be the most blatant and grand corruption scheme to hit the European Parliament to date, It shouldn't come as a surprise. The parliament is in charge of not only policing the EU, but of monitoring itself, which is why they have yet to create the ethics board they voted to approve over a year ago. Maybe this outrageous international fraud scandal will finally encourage the EU watchdogs to fulfill their ethical duties. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from ABC News. This news is sickening to those who care about the integrity of Europe's institutions, which is why the EU has suspended Kylie from her duties and is thoroughly investigating the matter. Ministers are working diligently to broker deals with rising nations like Qatar 
but that doesn't mean they'll allow such a blatant disregard for the rules to go unpunished. Anti-corruption measures will be implemented. I don't know how these people do it. I would be so stressed if someone told me right now, like, hey, listen, you can uh, get away with this. Uh, it's a six figure deal. You can get away with it. No one will find out. Probably you're fine. I would be so stressed. I would be so I would be falling apart. I wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah. Money. puts a lot of stress on people. That's for sure. Uh, you seem pretty comfortable with the idea. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I'm about finished with my transaction. I don't know about yours. <laughs> Want to help us improve the news? Go to www.improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. In our next story, in what is called Twitter Files 4.0, Donald Trump has been targeted with a ban. And here are the facts as agreed upon by TRT World, Epoch Times, Fox News, New York Post, and MSN. Twitter CEO Elon Musk on Saturday backed the release of Twitter Files 4.0, the fourth installment of a series of confidential internal communications between the platform's senior executives before the Tesla owner took over. Part four of the Twitter Files, a Musk initiative to show how Twitter's previous leadership allegedly stifled free speech, was released through independent journalist Michael Schellenberger. The previous unseen communications appear to show how Twitter's formal global head of trust and safety, Yoel Roth, tweaked the rules of the platform in order to permanently ban former U.S. President Donald Trump after the January 6th riots. Schellenberger reported that a few influential Twitter executives decided to create justifications to ban Trump, pursue a policy change directed at him alone, and expressed, quote, no concern for the free speech or democracy implications of a ban. Schellenberger also highlighted that Trump was demonized among Democrats, claiming that 96%, 98%, and 99% of Twitter staff's political donations went to Democrats in 2018, 2020, and 2022, respectively. The revelation comes after Twitter Files 3.0 was released by American author and podcaster Matt Tybee on Friday. It described how the Supreme Court of Moderation within the social media platform reportedly issued content rulings on the fly to deplatform Trump. Thanks for those facts, Eric. We have a Democratic narrative spin on this story from New York Magazine. There's no doubt that Musk's ostensibly apolitical gesture of transparency is aiding a partisan messaging campaign. The previous Twitter files could neither disclose how the GOP candidates were blacklisted nor indicate how the suppression of Hunter Biden's story created a constitutional crisis. The documents have so far failed to provide evidence of the previous management's political bias. Yet they offer substantial insight into how Musk uses the platform to promote tendentious partisan narratives. And we counter that with a Republican narrative coming from Washington Times. Elon Musk is doing the country a favor by releasing Democratic secrets for every U.S. citizen to examine. The Twitter files have exposed political corruption proving that shadow banning was real and described how conservatives were often caught in the crossfire. Instead of dismissing the documents as boneheaded statements, the government and U.S. intelligence officials must analyze them to protect national security, avert election theft, and safeguard freedom of speech. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance that the U.S. will elect a president who is not a Democrat or a Republican by March 2107. 
You know, I was thinking about this, uh, the Twitter files. This is becoming almost as tendentious as having to keep up with the iOS updates for an iPhone. It's like, have you downloaded the latest Twitter files? No, whenever I update my my uh, my Trump Twitter files, it makes my phone slow down. So <laughs> I'm not going to fall for that one. Okay. <laughs> Social strife in Peru as the president seeks early elections amid protests. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Guardian, Al Jazeera, Sputnik, El País, Andina, and Reuters. Peru's new president, Dina Buarte, announced on Monday that she plans to submit a bill to bring forward the general elections to April 2024 amid widespread protests that have killed at least two. Demonstrations supporting former president Pedro Castillo were reported on Sunday across the country's interior, with a 15-year-old and an 18-year-old reportedly killed during clashes with police in the southern city of Andahuelas in the Aparimac region. Aparimac's regional governor, Baltazar Landeron, added on Sunday evening that more than 30 people have been injured in confrontations between protesters and police, while violence has also been reported at the Andahuelas airport. Bulhuarte on Monday also declared a state of emergency in the south, where protests have been more intense as local social leaders don't recognize the new president and have announced an indefinite strike. Prime Minister Pedro Angulo said the state of emergency will be enforced in areas where conflicts have emerged, citing Aparimac, Chala, and a part of Ica. He stressed that other areas will also be monitored. Boluarte was sworn in last week after Castillo was sacked and arrested for attempting to dissolve the legislature in an attempt to prevent an impeachment vote against him. Those were the facts, and we have a couple of spins, beginning with the left narrative coming from Telesur English. Castillo's ousting was part of a classist, racist plot concocted by far-right elites to break the popular will. Bulwarte should not have agreed to a truce with these undemocratic coup plotters. Peru needs to return the power to its people by advancing general elections and convening a constituent assembly. And the right narrative comes from Fox News. Castillo and his supporters have been following other Latin American autocrats' coup playbook, demanding Congress to be shut down and trying to subvert constitutional order. His impeachment and arrest came as an institutional warning that the Peruvian people will not accept attempts to break the rule of law. Turning our attention to day 292 of the conflict in Ukraine, as Biden and G7 pledge further boost to Ukraine's air defenses. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Axios, CNN, Newsbud, Al Jazeera, and Ukraine Forum. In a call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky late on Sunday, U.S. President Joe Biden pledged to further boost Ukraine's air defenses, as well as to continue efforts to restore the country's battered energy infrastructure following Russian attacks. According to a White House readout, quote, the U.S. is prioritizing efforts to strengthen Ukraine's air defense through our security assistance, including the December 9th announcement of $275 million in additional ammunition and equipment that included systems to counter the Russian use of unmanned aerial vehicles. In a tweet, Zelensky said the exchange was, quote, a fruitful conversation with the President of the United States. I expressed gratitude for another security package. We discussed further defense cooperation, protection, and maintenance of our energy sector. He added that the pair coordinated their positions ahead of an online G7 summit on Monday. The summit, convened by German Chancellor Olaf Scholz, saw the G7 countries reaffirm their unwavering support to Ukraine by also promising to provide further military and air defense systems. Zelensky reportedly joined the virtual meeting. 
Meanwhile, following a meeting with U.S. and Russian diplomats in Turkey on Friday, where only technical issues such as embassy staff and visas were reportedly discussed, rather than Ukraine, Russian Deputy Foreign Minister Sergei Vershinin was quoted in Russia's RIA Novosti on Monday as stating that, quote, Istanbul is a convenient place for such contacts. However, unfortunately, we do not see a constructive approach from the American side aimed at concrete results. On the ground, Ukraine's exiled governor for Luhansk, Serhiy Haidai, said that Ukraine launched a HIMARS attack at a hotel in the region that he claimed housed members of the Russian mercenary force, the Wagner Group. A huge number of those who were there died, Haidai said, though the claims couldn't be independently confirmed at this stage. Russian attacks, meanwhile, continued to be recorded in Donetsk, where one civilian was killed and 11 more were injured in the past day, and in Kherson, where one civilian was reported injured in the same period. Russian attacks were also recorded in Sumy and Dnipropetrovsk, though there were no additional reports of civilian casualties. Thanks for those facts, Eric. PBS NewsHour brings us the anti-Russia narrative. This invasion is an egregious violation of international law. Putin's ultimate aim is to restore the Soviet empire, even if it takes massive bloodshed and false pretexts, such as calling the 2014 Ukrainian revolution after an election a coup. This unprovoked attack is the latest chapter in Putin's Orwellian attempt to rewrite history. And National Security Archive gives us a pro-Russian narrative. NATO and the U.S. have ignored Russia's security concerns by breaking its promise not to expand eastward in return for German reunification. These concerns are legitimate, and taking them seriously would have avoided the Ukraine tragedy. And we have a nerd narrative on this story as well. This one says that there's a 10% chance that Ukraine will join NATO before the year 2024, and that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The UN reports that over 11,000 children were killed or maimed in Yemen. Here are the facts as agreed upon by France 24, the official website of the United Nations, Le Orient Today, and Middle East Monitor. The UN Children's Fund, or UNICEF, released a report on Monday stating that more than 11,000 children have been killed or maimed in Yemen's civil war since it began in late 2014, triggering what has been characterized as the world's worst humanitarian crisis. According to UNICEF, between July and September of this year alone, at least 74 children were among the 164 people killed or injured by landmines and unexploded ordnance. More than 17.8 million Yemenis also lack access to safe water, sanitation, and hygiene services. Following her recent visit to the country, agency chief Catherine Russell called for the urgent renewal of the truce between the Yemeni government and the Houthis that was originally implemented in April but expired in October. Since the ceasefire ended, another 62 children have reportedly been killed or injured as of November 30th. 2.2 million Yemeni children are reportedly acutely malnourished, with 540,000 under the age of five in a severe category. Almost 75% of Yemen's population is estimated to need humanitarian assistance and protection. Yemen's civil war erupted in 2014 when the Houthis, who are supported by Iran, took hold of the capital Sana'a, prompting Saudi-led forces to intervene in support of the Yemeni government the following year. Since then, the war has been ongoing. The complex emergency has claimed massive casualties, either as a result of fighting or indirectly through unsafe drinking water, disease outbreaks, hunger, and other conflict-exacerbated factors. 
Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. As we look at the two spins that have emerged, beginning with the establishment critical narrative, it's being provided by Al Mayadeen. There is only one party to blame for Yemeni children's horrific suffering, Saudi Arabia and its allies. The war has ultimately been the result of Saudi Arabia's aggression toward Yemen and the resulting siege it imposed on Houthi-controlled areas. Saudi U.S. aggression must bear the responsibility for this humanitarian cataclysm. And the national news brings us a pro-establishment narrative. The suffering of Yemeni children falls on Iran and its proxy force that only seek to terrorize Yemenis and cause chaos in the region. Though the Houthis and their supporters pretend that Saudi Arabia and its allies intervened in Yemen out of nowhere, they only responded when the Houthis captured Sana'a and the internationally recognized Yemeni government invited the intervention. Iran and its proxy forces must take responsibility for this atrocity. In our next story, a Libyan man suspected in the Lockerbie bombing is now in U.S. custody. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Independent, Newsweek, Daily Wire, Daily Mail, and BBC News. Scotland's Crown Office and Procurator Fiscal Service said in a statement on Sunday that Abu Aguila Masud Ker al-Marimi, a Libyan man suspected of making the bomb that destroyed Pan Am Flight 103 over the Scottish town of Lockerbie in 1988, is in U.S. custody. The U.S. Department of Justice validated the statement, adding that, quote, he is expected to make his initial appearance in the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia. Pan Am Flight 103, traveling from London to New York, exploded over Lockerbie on December 21, 1988, killing all 259 people on board and 11 on the ground. It remains the deadliest terror attack in United Kingdom history. Masoud was a Libyan intelligence operative who allegedly executed the attack at the directive of the late Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi. In 2003, Gaddafi agreed to a $2.7 billion settlement that provided $10 million to each of the victims' families so that Libya would be taken off the U.S.'s list of state sponsors of terrorism. Former Libyan intelligence officer Abdel Basset al-Megrahi is the only person to have been convicted of involvement in the Lockerbie bombing. Al-Megrahi, who was imprisoned in 2001, was released by Scottish authorities in 2009 following a terminal cancer diagnosis. Al-Megrahi Scottish lawyer Amir Anwar said Masood has been in the custody of a warlord, quote, widely condemned for human rights abuses, and that manner in which the confession was obtained would be, quote, strongly opposed in any U.S. or Scottish court. Allegedly, while jailed in Libya, Masood confessed to being involved in the conspiracy with Megrahi to conduct the attack. Narrative A on this story comes from CBS News. Justice is finally here for those killed in the Lockerbie bombing. Gaddafi, who at the time was opposed to the West, was guilty of many things, including ordering this terror attack. Hopefully the victims' families will have closure now that another perpetrator will also be held accountable. And Narrative B, being provided by Times of Israel. Though the mainstream media have always blamed Libya and Gaddafi for the Lockerbie bombing, the truth is far murkier. Much of the evidence against al-Megrahi and the Libyan state was fabricated or otherwise manipulated. And it's quite possible that Iran was behind the Lockerbie bombing in retaliation for the U.S. downing of an Iranian civilian airliner. The U.S. should follow the evidence instead of embellishing the facts to fit a predetermined outcome. The second Oath Keeper trial begins. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, The Press Herald, The Tribune Democrat, CNN, and Associated Press. 
On Monday, opening statements in the U.S. Department of Justice, or DOJ's, case against the four Oath Keepers began. This comes two weeks after Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes and Florida chapter leader Kelly Meggs were convicted of seditious conspiracy. The four defendants in the current case all pleaded not guilty to charges of seditious conspiracy, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an official proceeding, and conspiracy to prevent an officer from discharging duties. The men were reportedly awaiting orders during the January 6th Capitol riots. In the first Oath Keepers trial, three lower-level defendants were acquitted on sedition charges, but were convicted of obstructing Congress's certification of the 2020 presidential election, an offense that carries up to 20 years in prison. Prosecutors charged that statements made by the defendants signaled a coordinated plan, while the defense claims that the government cherry-picked inflammatory comments out of context. Three other Oath Keepers previously pleaded guilty to seditious conspiracy and agreed to cooperate with authorities but didn't testify at the Rhodes trial. Another related trial is set for next month against former Proud Boys chairman Enrique Torrio. Those were the facts, and we have two spins that have been generated by this story, beginning with a right narrative coming from American Greatness. The Department of Justice is taking a dangerous and unprecedented step of criminalizing dissent. After nearly two years of trying to spin the January 6th Capitol riots into a large-scale terrorist attack, the government is trying to say that a militia planned a coup at the Capitol without a single firearm or explosive. This is pure political persecution and a threat to democracy. And the left narrative spin comes from Salon.com. American democracy is under attack, and if perpetrators of domestic terrorism aren't stopped now, Dangerous militias will continue to commit atrocities like those of January 6, 2021. The sedition trials of the Oath Keepers are about holding extremists accountable for their words and actions and preventing violent attacks. Twitter making the news again with Twitter Blue as it relaunches after a pause. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, Guardian, BBC News, TechCrunch, and Mashable. On Monday, Twitter officially relaunched its paid subscription service that paused last month after the platform was flooded with users violating the blue checkmark verification feature to impersonate famous brands and public figures. Called Twitter Blue, the paid subscription service offers verified status to users for $8 a month or now $11 per month for Apple devices. Under the revamped system, Twitter Blue subscribers cannot change their account handle, display names, or profile photos after receiving their verified badge until their accounts are reviewed again. Twitter Blue subscribers will reportedly be able to edit their tweets, see 50% fewer ads, have their tweets rocketed to the top of replies, and post 1080p videos. In concert with this program, Twitter will soon start transitioning from blue checks to gold checks for business accounts and a gray check mark for government accounts. Ahead of Twitter Blue's comeback, owner Elon Musk responded to an inquiry by saying he would increase the platform's character limit to 4,000, more than 14 times the current cutoff at 280. Thanks for that report, Eric. Narrative A on this story comes from Newsweek. Twitter's new offering will undoubtedly help the social media platform diversify its revenue stream, reduce its reliance on advertising, and cut down on trolls, impersonations, and fraud. In addition, Twitter Blue adds premium value to a user's account. At $8 or $11 a month, it's a bargain for the content. Narrative B being provided by Straits Times. Musk initially mocked Twitter's lords and peasants blue tick system, but now he's charging a fee and legitimizing it. Musk claims he's redirecting more power to the people, 
Unfortunately, his tone-deaf move is further dividing Twitter between the haves and the have-nots. And COVID news from China as the country deactivates its national tracking app. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Guardian, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Al Jazeera, and BBC News. Days after China began a scaleback of its long-running zero-COVID policy on Monday, Beijing pulled the plug on its COVID tracking smartphone app that recorded people's travel movements during the pandemic. The government-run Communications Itinerary Card, which used residents' mobile data to identify and quarantine residents who traveled to pandemic hotspots, was deactivated even as cases continued to surge across the country. Beijing's decision to roll back its COVID-0 policy and abandon the tracking app was reportedly taken after unprecedented anti-lockdown protests swept China late last month, posing the biggest challenge to the Chinese President Xi Jinping's authority during his term. Last week, Beijing lifted its most restrictive COVID policies, including large-scale lockdowns. The move is seen as a victory for the protesters. Meanwhile, China reported 8,626 COVID infections Sunday. However, recent testing policy changes could mean the numbers are likely much higher than recorded. Chen Ji, the chief physician of the Beijing Emergency Center, warned COVID was spreading rapidly. And despite the strict preventative and corrective measures, it will be difficult to cut off the transmission chain completely. Two spins emerging from this story, and we begin with a pro-China narrative coming from People's Daily. China is fine-tuning its COVID response based on the facts on the ground, and it hasn't abandoned its effective policies to contain the virus. Saving lives and safeguarding public health, while at the same time ensuring economic growth, are the government's top priorities, regardless of what Western countries and their media pontificate. And we have an anti-China narrative from Bangkok Post. Decisions like ending the tracking app are part of a knee-jerk reaction by China to the rare protests over its zero-COVID policies and other criticisms. But China still faces many stiff challenges, including getting more people vaccinated before it can permanently loosen restrictions. COVID outbreaks and more dissension from the Chinese people will undoubtedly lead to tighter restrictions in the future. This is a volatile situation. In medical news, base editing clears a girl's incurable cancer. And here are the facts as agreed upon by STV, BBC News, Daily Mail, New Scientist, and Telegraph. Alyssa, a 13-year-old girl from Leicester, England, who was diagnosed with T-cell acute lymphoblastic leukemia last year, has been cleared of her incurable cancer after undergoing a base-editing cell therapy at London's Great Ormond Street Hospital for Children. According to her doctors, the teenager had an aggressive form of cancer where her T-cells, which are supposed to protect a person by seeking out and destroying defective cells, had become dangerous to the healthy parts of her body. After extensive chemotherapy and a bone marrow transplant failed to rid the cancerous cells from her body, Alyssa entered a clinical trial and became the first patient to receive an experimental treatment involving base editing. As part of the breakthrough trial, she received a healthy donor's edited T-cells, a type of white blood cell, which located and destroyed Alyssa's cancerous T-cells without attacking each other. 28 days later, Alyssa was in remission. Afterwards, doctors gave her a second bone marrow transplant to restore her immune system. Six months post-BMT, her cancer is reportedly untraceable, although she is still being monitored in case it comes back. 
Robert Chisa, one of the doctors treating Alyssa, said that by altering the fundamental building blocks of the genetic coding of immune cells, base editing, quote, paves the way for other new treatments and ultimately better futures for sick children. Thanks for those hopeful facts, Eric. We have a narrative A on this story from the New York Times. The outcome of this revolutionary treatment is remarkable and makes base editing a strong contender in the development of innovative cell and gene therapies. With trials for curing single-cell diseases already underway, the next step is for the biomedical community to develop a versatile, cost-effective program to make base editing cures a reality for millions of patients worldwide. Narrative B being provided by the World Health Organization. Though base editing might have saved Alyssa's life, it's too early to guess her prognosis. Furthermore, considering that the treatment can permanently change a patient's genetic code, every effort must be made to identify and address ethical issues that may arise with its use, such as the privacy and confidentiality of genomic data. And we've got a nerd narrative on this story as well. This one says there's a 50% chance that the mean five-year survival rate of all cancers for both sexes in the United States will exceed 75% by April of 2029. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. The U.S. is to announce a fusion energy breakthrough. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Financial Times, Fox News, Independent, Washington Post, and CNN. The U.S. Department of Energy has announced that a major scientific breakthrough has been made in the federal Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, with additional details to be provided Tuesday. It's thought that scientists have recently achieved an elusive net energy gain in a fusion reaction, according to a Financial Times report citing three individuals privy to the experiment. The reaction involved bombarding a pellet of hydrogen plasma with the world's largest laser, to trigger a nuclear fusion reaction, reportedly producing 2.5 megajoules of energy, which is 120% of the energy used to power the experiment. Fusion research aims to replicate the carbon-free nuclear reaction that takes place on the sun, which scientists have attempted since the 1950s. A senior fusion scientist familiar with the work stated, To most of us, this was only a matter of time. Tony Rulestone, a fusion scientist at the University of Cambridge, told CNN that while the potential U.S. breakthrough is promising, the success is miles away from being able to provide mass energy for consumption. Thank you, Scott, for the facts. And Telegraph gives us Narrative A. The news is a breakthrough in the search for clean energy and a true milestone in the journey to move economies away from carbon-producing fossil fuels. With bipartisan support in Washington, we are one step closer to reaching the holy grail of energy production. Narrative B comes from New Scientist. At least for now, nuclear fusion will not likely solve climate change. With efficient, reliable fusion reactors, we could conceivably meet the world's energy demands. However, we are far away from this being a reality because it's challenging to scale and implement this technology on a widespread level. To keep global warming down, we must cut carbon emissions right now. This development may play a role later this century. And the Metaculous Prediction community is providing a nerd narrative for this story as well. They say that there's a 50% chance that nuclear fusion will provide at most 10% of the world's primary energy by September of the year 2060. 
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, December 13th, 2022. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you'd like more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.